Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, great to be here together, and I have various things. I'm not sure if they're going to fly away or whatnot. I'm going to try and be careful that that doesn't happen, but we'll see. And before I get started, I want to say that being up here has a certain privilege, so I'm going to take a picture. <laughs> I'm going to take a couple of pictures, actually. It's probably tacky, but we'll be happy later that I did that. So you can smile, you can honk, you can wave. Nice. All right, thank you for uh, humoring me in that way. I appreciate that. It really is great to be here today and um, to be together, uh, even in this capacity, and be able to worship the Lord together, to be able to hear one another and see one another. Uh, we are very happy about that. This um, was an idea that uh, seemed like a really good idea, and now that we're here, it seems like a fabulous idea. However, uh, it put out a lot of people so that they had to do a lot of extra work in, uh, in a very rushed fashion in order to bring this about. And uh, so we appreciate them, and we, we want uh, one more time to give a round of applause to all those who worked hard together to, to make this happen. I confess I was not one of those. I just participated in having the idea, and then I gave it to people who are good at doing that, and they weren't always probably happy with me that I did that. But here we are, and we praise the Lord for that, and we praise the Lord for their service. We are uh, going to be reading this morning from Romans chapter 7, so you've got your Bible, and uh, we're going to be reading from Romans 7, continuing on where we uh, started some time ago, where we left off some time ago, reading verses 7 through 13. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let's pray. Father, we 
come to you this morning and we worship you. And we are glad to worship you together. We acknowledge that you are our creator, that you have made us and all these things around us, this world we live in, and we worship you. Father, we praise you that you've given us your word. We praise you that you've given us this chance to be together. We praise you that you have given us Jesus, whose death we will commemorate today in the Lord's Supper. Father, we are a grateful people this morning. We ought always to be, and we will be for all eternity. And today we give you thanks for what you have done for us, for your mercies towards us that we don't deserve. Father, we ask that you'd bless our time as we are gathered in this way to hear your word proclaimed. Pray that you would be lifted up, that we would be built up by your spirit as your word is proclaimed here. So we pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I must say that uh, the scene I'm looking at right now looks a little bit like a scene out of the movie Cars. <laughs> I expect the hoods of your cars to start talking or something like that. It is uh, pretty interesting times we find ourselves in and being uh, gathering here like this. But really, for, uh, for the history of the Christian church, this is not that unusual. It may look different than it did uh, in, in former times when they had to meet under strange circumstances, but it's, it's nothing new, really. If you think about the, the Christians that were alive in Rome during the early periods, they had to go into the catacombs, and they had to worship and live and even die and be buried in the catacombs underground so that uh, they could escape persecution, they could worship in peace. And so I'm sure they would have been very happy to have the sunshine on their face. They would have been very happy to be seated in the, the comfort of a car uh, in, in this kind of a context. But they were underground, and they praised the Lord for opportunity to do that. And the uh, Puritans during the, the 17th and 18th century would often be forced out of their churches and, and have to meet in the woods somewhere. And they would preach outdoors in the woods, and people would walk for miles to get there, and they would have no chair to sit on, and they would have uh, no no open area like this, they would just gather. And John Bunyan, who uh, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he was a very famous uh, preacher along those lines that he would preach out in the woods and people would come for miles around to hear him preach. And then later on, uh, during the early centuries in North America, when uh, George Whitfield came and would preach in, in the New World, People would walk for miles and gather in the fields. And the reason they had to gather in the fields was because there were thousands and thousands who would gather to hear him preach. And so this context we find ourselves in is unique to us, but it is not unique to the church. And we're not here because of persecution. And we're not here because of some similar kind of hardship. And so we ought to have a little perspective on uh, the context we find ourselves in, that this is, this is a great opportunity for us and in some ways, it's a great opportunity for us to kind of make connection with our Christian forebears who have gone before us. So uh, we, we do praise the Lord for this opportunity. And kind of along those lines, Chris mentioned 
while he was praying or as he was about to pray that we want to remember our missionaries, and indeed we do. And, and I want to uh, give a big thanks to, uh, to Parkside because what has happened during the uh, last few weeks when we've not been able to be together and you've had to give in unusual ways, whether you mail it in or whether you give online or drop things by the church or whatever, uh, I want to report to you that our, our giving has not decreased during this time. Praise the Lord. And so, amen. And so uh, we, we praise the Lord for that. that uh, we get to t continue to take care of our missionaries. We get to continue to focus on the things that we want to focus on. And we're not, we haven't been put into a financial uh, hardship at this time. And so we praise the Lord because we know that is sacrificial giving on your part. And we appreciate you. And we thank God for you. And uh, so we are encouraged about that. So we come to our passage today. In Romans chapter 7, picking up where we left off some time ago, and um, I'm sure you don't have immediate recall on what we talked about in Romans chapter 7 and 6 uh, and 5, etc. And so, just very, very briefly, Romans 4, 5, and 6, this might uh, suffice to summarize for that, that the old way of the written code, the law, what it did for us was it aroused the sinful passions of our flesh, and it produced not good fruit, but dead fruit. So the question then that we come to in this point in our discussion is, is the law sin? If the law has served to produce in the end dead fruit, is the law sin? And so that brings us to our passage that we're looking at today, and, and I will confess that that uh, this is a passage that requires some thought. All of chapter 7, really most of Romans, but all of chapter 7 particularly requires thought about what it means and how we're to understand it and then how we are to apply it in our own lives. So we need to uh, kind of engage in what we're looking at here. And so I've broken it down into three basic parts, verses 7 and 8. What does the law do to sin? What does the law do to sin? In those verses we read, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So what does, what does the law do to sin? Well, first of all, in verse 7, it makes sin known. It makes it known to us. And this sounds a little bit like what we read back in chapter 3 and verse 20 of Romans. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what does the law do? Well, it makes sin known. Most basically, the law tells us what holiness is. It gives us a picture, a description of what holy living looks like. And on the other hand, it gives us a description, a picture of what its opposite is. It defines sin for us. The law spells out for us what God's character 
is like, what God is like, and therefore what he expects his creation, his children, to be like. And so it becomes very clear to us what the contrary of that is. When we see it, we can see the breaking of the law, and it looks so different from the law. It looks so different from God, and we recognize that that is sin. And so sin is anything that we do or say or think that is contrary to God's character. And God's character is revealed in God's law. And so you might ask, what, what does it mean when it says here, the law makes sin known? How do we not know sin? And in what way does the law make sin known? Well, first is the, the aspect of being able to identify something as sin. That that action, that that thought, that that thing is sin. Now, of course, some things like theft and murder, those things are clearly wrong. They're clearly sinful and they're outward actions and we can all look at them and see them and we can all recognize that that is sin. But there are other, more internal things that perhaps we don't otherwise recognize as sin. Like coveting, for example. And the law tells us that that indeed is sin. And so we begin to identify, we begin to understand further what sin is. And so... That's what uh, Paul is talking about here when he says, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't have known coveting. He's not talking about the fact that he wouldn't have known what the definition of coveting is. Of course, he knew that. But he wouldn't have known what it was as a sin, that it was truly a sin on par with theft, on par with murder, on par with lying, that even that attitude of the heart would be sin. Now, I, I know a man who uh, grew up in Mormonism, and that was his life, and that's the way he grew up, and he understood outward conformity to the law. He understood what it meant to have law over him, to have uh, an, an expression of, of what's expected, to have rules, and he felt pretty good about his obedience to those rules. He, he felt like, actually, he was pretty blameless in regard to external conformity to the law. And it wasn't until he began to hear of the law's demands regarding the heart, regarding the desires of the heart, and the actions of the heart that are in here that never actually show themselves by the words we speak, that never actually show themselves by the actions that we do. And when he discovered, when he learned, when that was made known to him as sin, then he learned what sin really was. And so the first aspect of knowing sin, as we read here, is recognizing what sin is. But there's a second aspect of knowing sin, and that is knowing sin in our own experience that it is sinful. Not just identifying it and knowing abstractly that it's sinful, but knowing in my own heart that it is sin and I have done it and I am guilty of that thing. The law produces conviction of sin and not merely information about sin. And so the law convicts us, convicts us about our action and we, and we feel a guilt. 
we feel that we've broken the law, we realize that we now stand guilty before God because we've broken his law, whether outwardly or even just inwardly in a place that no one else knows and no one else sees, but God sees. And so the first thing that the law does is it makes sin known. And secondly, it makes sin grow. Do you see what he said at the beginning of verse 8? But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. It actually grew. The law serves to arouse our sin. And it actually makes us, makes sin in us want to sin all the more. Makes sin in us want to rebel all the more against God's law. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, man's sinful heart has been in rebellion against God, in rebellion against God's law, not wanting to follow Him, not wanting to obey Him, not wanting to submit to Him. And when the law comes in, it stirs up that sinful desire of sin. And it actually multiplies sin. So that sin is exacerbated by the presence of the law, by the application of the law. Sin is made worse when the law comes in. And so the law makes sin to grow. And thirdly, the law makes sin alive. He continues in verse 8. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Sin lies dead apart from the law. But when the law comes in, it stirs up that inactive sin. When he says dead here, he doesn't mean it's absent. He doesn't mean it's gone. He means it's not active. And when the law comes in, that inactive sin suddenly becomes active. We've used the example before of, of sitting in pew three because that's Simi Travis's pew. And... Uh, if I were to tell you, don't sit in pew three, the first thing you would want to do is go sit in pew three. Of course, I was talking about the example of children, but some of you know exactly what I mean. We're being told uh, for the last several weeks we can't gather, we have to be uh, removed, we have to be apart from one another, and, and what do we want to do right away? We want to rebel against that. We want to rebel against that. When the law comes in, sin comes to life. And that rebellion you didn't even know you had shows its head. And that's what happens in this context also. And so what does the law do to sin? Well, it makes sin known. It makes sin grow. And it even makes sin come to life. It makes sin more active. So that's what the law does to sin. What does the law do to me? What does the law do to me? We continue reading in verses 9, 10, and 11. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the first thing the law does is it promises me life. We mentioned not long ago Leviticus 18.5, which summed up, says this, do this law and you will live. Leviticus 18.5 says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, 
he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So in other words, do this and live. The law promises me life. Hey, all I have to do is obey it. All I have to do is do that law, keep that law, and I'll have life. So it promises me life. Obey God's law and live. Obey God's law and be happy. Obey God's law and be blessed with peace with God and eternal life. It's very straightforward. Do this and live. So the law promises me life. But it also provides an opportunity against me. Not only does it promise me life, but secondly, the law provides an opportunity against me. Even that seemingly simple promise of life, what, what actually happens is that sin, seizing an opportunity through the law, through the commandment, deceives me. That the presence of the law actually gives opportunity to my flesh. Any commandment of Scripture, like you shall not covet, essentially serves to pick a fight with my sin. It starts a fight with my sin, and my sin happily fights against it. Sin takes that commandment as a new opportunity, a new reason to rebel against God's law, and I end up being the battleground for that rebellion. So sin works to deceive me. It works to deceive me into thinking that pursuing that sin would be rewarding. It would be freeing. It would make me happy. It would give me joy. It would be exciting. Or whatever. It would be more so, more exciting and more joyful than following God's law. That is the deception. And if I buy into that deception, then I will follow after that sin. And I will go seek greater joy and greater happiness and greater excitement in that sin. And so the law provides an opportunity against me. And so the result, thirdly, is that the law brings me death. The result is my own death. What does the law do to me? Well, it promises life, but then it gives an opportunity to sin, and the end result is that it brings me death. Now, if you're paying attention, you've noticed in verse 9 what is one of the most difficult parts of this passage. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. How could Paul say that? This is the same Paul who will say in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were all born dead in our trespasses and sins. This is the same Paul who would say that we are all by nature children of wrath. And this is the same Paul who will argue in Colossians chapter 2 in verse 13 that you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So Paul has argued elsewhere, and he's all argued thoroughly and convincingly that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. So how is it that he can say in this passage, I once was alive apart from the law? How do we understand that? 
Well, I don't think he's using the language of life and death in the same way in this passage in Romans chapter 7 that he does elsewhere, like in Ephesians 2 or in Colossians chapter 2. We've already seen that the statement that apart from the law, sin lies dead. And I've told you already that that dead just means inactive. Well, I think what he means here when he says apart from the law, I was alive, he's, he's talking about his own understanding of his guilt in relation to that particular sin. Like the example I used of the man I know who grew up, grew up under a system of external conformity to the law and he thought he was good to go. He was happy and he was content and he felt like he had peace with God until the law came in and said, yeah, there's, there, there are things in the heart as well. There's coveting that's a sin. That's an attitude of the heart. It's something that's deep within. And suddenly where he used to think he had peace with God, he used to think he was all right with God. Now all of a sudden he knew there's something wrong. So he was alive in a sense, but now he had been convicted. And now he could see sin in his own life. And so he died. It's like a person who, who goes into the doctor feeling just fine, regular checkup, and gets diagnosed with a terminal disease. It's, it's as if they died. The day before, he was alive and everything was great. And he goes into the doctor and he hears that, no, your condition is far, far worse than you ever could have imagined. And so he might say he was alive. And then he died when he got the news. So the law promises me life, but then it provides sin with an opportunity against me. And the result is my own death which raises the natural question for us, why then would I want the law? Why would I want the law? And he continues in verses 12 and 13. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Why would I want the law? Well, Because it's holy and righteous and good. And it displays holiness in the face of sin. The law shows us what holiness is. The law gives us a picture of what holiness is. And so we can understand, we can see better God's nature, God's character, what he is like in his character by looking into the law. The Mosaic law tells us what God is like. He reveals himself in all of his righteousness, in all of his love, in all of his holiness. He reveals himself in his law. The law shows us what it means to be holy. It shows us what it would mean for us to be holy and for us to be righteous and for us to be good. We see what justice is when we look to the law. We have a picture, an idea, an understanding of what justice is in our minds, but then we look to God's law and we see precisely 
and specifically what God views as justice. So why would I want the law? Because in it I see God revealed in his character, both in who he is in his character and in what his standard is for us. So why would I want the law? It's because it displays holiness in the face of sin. But secondly, the law reveals sin's evil presence. The law flushes out our sin. The law comes on the scene, and our sin rears its head. It's like someone walking through a field of tall grass or alfalfa or something like that, and they look out and all they see is grass, but by walking by, by making noise, they see birds fly up. They see critters run away because they rear their heads when the noise shows up. And that's what the law is like. It flushes out our sin. It doesn't cause sin. It flushes it out, much like if you've ever gone into the doctor to have an allergy test, and they put that grid on your back, and they poke you with lots of little needles that have different things on those needles, and then they number the, the little squares, and then they observe what you're allergic to. Well, that test didn't make you allergic to anything. Those little needles didn't make you allergic to the thing on that needle. They revealed, by inflammation, by discoloring, or whatever happens, they revealed to you what you are, in fact, allergic to that may have been a mystery to you before. They flush out that allergy by poking you. And the law is similar in that way. Because of the law, sin is shown to be sin. So its presence reveals and makes known sin. The law reveals sin's presence. And then finally, the law magnifies sin's evil. Back to verse 13. Did that which is good then? He had just said, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Did law kill me? By no means, he says. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What sin does is it utilizes a good and holy and pure and right and godly instrument, the law, and it kills us. Sin grabs that good instrument. It utilizes that instrument, and it brings us death. And so the result is we see that sin is so evil, sin is so dark, Sin is so wretched that it can even take something good, something all the way good and pure and righteous and holy, something that promised us life and give us death instead. And so we see just how evil sin is. We see just how wrong sin is. We see just how hateful to God sin is. 
Well, that's the conclusion of our passage this morning, but that would be a terrible place for us to, to be left. And so what else does the law do? Why would I want the law? Well, it, it shows who God is. It shows what goodness and righteousness and holiness is. And it shows the presence of sin. And it shows just how awful sin is. And what do those things do for you and for me, Christian? What do those things do for you and for me, non-Christian? What they ought to cause us to do, and this is our concluding application of all of this, what ends up being bad news about the law, is that when we look to the law, we see what God is like. We see what his character is like. We see what he expects of us. And we rejoice in that because those things are good and they're right and they're how we ought to be. But then we mourn because we know that we are not those things. That we, in fact, break that law. And so we're guilty. And when we're guilty, what do we do? Where do we go when we are guilty before God? Well, that's when we look to Christ. That's when we look to Christ and we see in Christ that he was perfectly obedient to that same law that I have broken. And when the law came to him and said, you shall not covet, he did not covet. You and I, right along with Paul, when the law says, you shall not covet, we begin to covet. And he did not. He was obedient. He was always obedient to his father. And so where we have such stain, we have such guilt, we have broken his law in such egregious ways, Jesus did not. And so we can look to him and we see his righteousness and we see that he did obey. We see that he did please God, that he was righteous in his character, just like the law required. And we rejoice in that. But even that would be bad news for us if he had not also died for us. That the penalty you and I owe, the guilt that we have because of breaking the law, that, that, that we bear, the, the penalty we have because when the law came and said, you shall not covet, God intended us not to covet. He said, my character is not to covet. You shall not covet. And the first thing we do is begin to covet. We have that guilt. And Jesus, who did not covet, Jesus, who is obedient, instead goes to the cross to take that penalty upon himself. He who did not deserve that penalty took that penalty upon himself. And so now when we look to Christ and we see his holy life and we look to his death and we see his death for us and for our sin, now we find hope. Now we find joy. Now we find peace. And so what do we do? Why do we want the law? Because it drives us to look to the grace of God, to look beyond ourselves and if you don't know Christ this morning, in some way, you are looking to yourself. You are worshiping yourself, serving yourself, trusting yourself that you have what it takes to please God, that you have what it takes to have an eternity of, of bliss and joy, that the happiness you experience in this life, you have what it takes to extend that beyond the grave. You need to have the law applied to you and even as I say these words this morning, you shall not covet. 
My prayer is that the law would convict you that you do indeed covet. As good as you may think you are, the fact is, in your inner man, in your inner being, in the places where no one else can see, the places where external rules cannot see, you are guilty before God. And you have that same guilt upon you. And you deserve death. You deserve judgment. That the law that came to you and said, do this and live, you have not done that. And so the result is that you die. So look to the mercy of God. Look to the mercy of God in Christ. When you look to Jesus, you will see that he obeyed and that he died. And that by faith in him, he gives you that forgiveness of sins because he paid the penalty. And he takes your penalty upon himself. And he gives you his righteousness by his life of obedience. And applies that righteousness to your account so that you have life and righteousness before God. So that when God looks at you, he sees the law fulfilled. Because of Christ. Run to the mercy of God in Christ. But Christian, why would you want the law? I mean, that's all done away, right? Jesus already obeyed it. It's in the past. It's been completed. We look to the law because it shows us what righteousness looks like. We, as Christians, as God's children, want to honor him. We want to do what he says. And he says, be righteous. And then he gives us his law, which shows us what righteousness looks like. So we look to it and we say, I want to be righteous like that. But then what do we find? We find we still don't keep it. We find that we still have coveting in our hearts, that we still have sin within us. And so when we look to the law that is righteous and good, and we, we love God who gave us the law and we want to obey him, when we look to that law, it drives us to despair of hope in ourselves and drives us, Christian, to put our faith again in Christ to look again to the mercy and the grace of God in Christ. Christian, looking to the mercy and grace of God in Christ is not a one-time thing. It's not something you did when you trusted Christ back in 1983. It's something that we need to do every day. We still have the tendency to trust ourselves. We still have the tendency to worship ourselves. We still have the tendency to put ourselves first. And when we go to God's law... It makes that known to us. And we run again to the mercy and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we find peace with God. We find forgiveness once again and we rejoice in that. And we say, Father, I, I, I want to obey you. I want to serve you. I want to be righteous and holy and good. And so I look to your law. But I find that I don't keep it. God, forgive me. Thank you for Jesus who kept it and gives me forgiveness even now so that we end up running to and looking to the mercy and the grace of God in Christ even now. And so why do I love the law? Why do I want the law? Because it takes me to Christ. It takes me to Christ again and again and again. And Christians, we need that every day. And so as we finish up our time this morning having looked at these verses about about the law the law which is so good and beautiful and yet it reveals 
what is not good, what is evil, of sin, and how much of that still remains in us. And it drives us to Jesus Christ. And that's an appropriate place for us to end. That's an appropriate thing for us to contemplate. Even as we conclude our time here, we want to look to Christ. Let's pray together and then we'll partake together of the Lord's Supper. Father, we come to you this morning again thankful that we have the opportunity to do this, that we have the, uh, the place to do it, the hosts who have taken care of us, who've do, people who have done hard work to make this happen, that you have given us a beautiful day, that you have given us opportunity despite quarantining for us to be together and worship you this morning. We thank you and praise you that you have given us your word that tells us truth, even painful truth, truth that we don't like to hear, but truth that we must hear if we are to have life. And we praise you most of all for Jesus Christ who obeyed your law, who was righteous in his person and in his actions, and yet died in the place of sinners, died in my place, that I might have forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of God credited to my account. And so indeed we, we worship you and we thank you even this morning. Father, we love you we rejoice in knowing you, and we rejoice in having peace with you through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.